Welcome to BSD Talk, number 102. It's Tuesday, March 6, 2007. In the following interview, both of us were a little sleep-deprived, and the audio got a little funky at the end, so I had to chop off a little bit at the end of the interview. So if it seems to end abruptly, that's my fault, and I'm sorry about that, but I think the content is still good. Anyway, here we go. Today on BSD Talk... We're speaking with Randall Stewart. Welcome to the show. Hi. Could you start by giving a brief introduction about who you are and what you do? Okay, my name is Randall Stewart. I'm a Cisco Distinguished Engineer. I work mainly on transport protocols. I'm actually one of the co-inventors of SCTP. Today I'm speaking in behalf of myself, not really in behalf of Cisco, even though I do work for them, and and they do support some of the work that we do on the BSD stack for SCTP. And basically, I, you know, I, I uh, hang out at the IETF and do things with transport protocols and hack code on SCTP. And that was the main reason for my call today, because you have been working on bringing SCTP to FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. So could you start by giving a very quick description of what SCTP is? Let's see. I, uh, well, how, to, how to start something long and do it in real succinct. SCTP, which stands for Stream Control Transmission Protocol, and for those of you listening out there, you can go to www.sctp.org or www.sctp.de, either one of those, and uh, you'll find, um, there, I think there's an introductory tutorial on one of them and various little literature here and there, some you know different PowerPoint stuff that I've given out over the years. Basically, SCTP is a kind of a next-generation TCP is the way I like to look at it. So TCP is a transport protocol that allows you to send a stream of bytes from one place to another reliably over the Internet. And if you think about that, you open a socket and you connect or accept a connection and you send data across and you you receive the data and there you are. That's how your web browsers work and all that kind of stuff. Well, way, way back in 2000, maybe before 2000, 1999, it was pretty well evident that TCP could not um, meet the needs of call control signaling for one over the Internet. And so we ended up developing SCTP instead. It, it provides additional features and additional functions that just aren't available in TCP. Does that sum it pretty well? So and maybe we can put SCTP in context in the stack okay. uh, you know, where we've got certain protocols like ARP and things that are happening at the local link level. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not replacing IP, uh, nope. and IP is your endpoint to endpoint, and then you've got the transport layer from application to application. And you also have protocols like ICMP. So in that kind of cloud of acronyms, where does SCTP fit in? Okay, so if you think of the bottom of the stack as physical, which is you know, layer 2, 802.11, all your you know, cards and different things that plug in and do the wire stuff, above that you have Ethernet drivers, and your IP level goes in above that, and then you sends and receives IP packets or Internet packets. And then on top of that, you have the transport layer. Transport layer provides, such as TCP, UDP, and SCTP. That's typically called layer four in the old OSI protocol model. ICOMP, by the way, is really part of IP, even though it's sometimes thought of separately. It's actually 
part of IP itself. So it's, it's kind of a layer three thing. So if you think about layer four is transport, layer three is IP, layer two and below are kind of the physical bits and wires and stuff that go out on the, on the wire that is way, way down there. And then above layer four or transport is normally your socket layer goes in and you hook on and up, up to the user application. So usually things below four and four and below are down in the kernel someplace and things above four are usually the socket layer up into the application. And I, yeah, I guess if people were looking at, at these different layers, when you're looking at IP or the Internet Protocol, that's where you're going to see IP addresses, machine addresses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then below that in TCP, you're not going to see any IP addresses. You're just going to see port numbers, which is what an application would be listening on. If, for, from the standpoint of an application, that's true. Um, however, even at that, even in TCP, you still have to use IP addresses to identify what machines you want to talk to. So you do still get IP addresses involved, but you're still at the TCP layer. Ports are the, are the principal thing that de- demultiplexes into which TCP uh, application or socket you want to talk to. The IP addresses get you to the machine, if you will. Sure, and the SCTP packets themselves don't contain IP addresses. They, they rely on IP to Correct. help build that socket. Right, so, so, so basically when you send down data, it, it gets encoded. Okay, so that the application sends data. Um, let's start with TCP first because that kind of, everyone kind of knows TCP. When, you, when I send a blob of data down to TCP, it puts a transport header on top of that. Uh, the transport header in TCP has a source port, a destination port, um, a checksum field, and some other wonderful stuff, some bits and bytes and pieces used in the connection. And it then sends that to IP, which puts an IP header. And that will be either a 20-byte IP header uh, if it's IPv4. It'll be a 40-byte IP header if it's IPv6. And then that goes out onto the wire. And so if you're putting your favorite Wireshark or Etherreal sniffer on the wire, you would see IP packets and in, inside that, you'd see TCP packets, and inside that, you'd see the different pieces of the TCP, and then finally the user data. Well, the same goes with the SCTP. You have IP packets that in, uh, ins- inside them, you get beyond the IP header, you have the SCTP common header, and then inside that, you have actually the SCTP pieces and the data, data pieces the user sends. So it, it definitely is layered and encoded, you know, as one would expect uh, in looking at any of the Wireshark or Etherreal protocol sniffers. And now that we've kind of established where SCTP sits in this stack, you know, when, when people talk about implementing a new protocol, one of the worries is, well, gee, we're implementing this on the endpoints, let's say FreeBSD or Linux mm-hmm. or Solaris. But what about all the intervening devices? You know, and the assumption is provided they're very simple and naive routers, they're only going to be looking at IP. Correct. So this new protocol, in the most basic sense, shouldn't cause issues in between. Yeah, you normally never, in, in theory, all these, all those great Cisco routers out there are just going to look at the IP packet and send it on its way. Okay, the the places that people get concerned with, which are validly so, are when you start hitting NATs and firewalls. When you then when you get to NATs and firewalls, you do have some issues. But in in the general vein, as far as over the big bad internet, you know, we've successfully had communication between my machines here in in my office all the way back to. A colleague of mine in Germany, as well as another colleague in, in uh, Tokyo. So uh, it's it's very much no problem getting over the big bad internet. However, if I want to go through my NAT box, uh, that causes another problem because my NAT likes to do different things. So you know, I can only run it from my outside of the NAT, if you will, and in, in the, what would you think of as a DMZ, um, until someone comes around and, and builds the NAT and firewall 
knowledge into FreeBSD, which some of that's being looked at and going on. I think Max Lear is going to look at doing some of it, and ho- hopefully it'll happen soon. So what were the limitations of TCP and UDP that you were looking to overcome with this new protocol? Well, first of all, with UDP, there's two big strikes against it. First, it's non- unreliable, so you have to do your own reliability. Second, it's, it has no congestion control. So UDP, if you think about it, is nothing more than IP itself with port numbers and, and, a, and a small checksum to send the data you know, across the Internet. And, and the, the same checksum the TCP uses, as a matter of fact. But basically, it's, you know, it, you know, you'd launch a UDP packet. It may get there. It may not. Oh, well. Okay? TCP presents to the application a stream of bytes in exactly the order that you sent them in. Okay? And notice I say a stream of bytes. Um, that's not to be confused with SCTP's term stream. It's a, it's a completely different concept. Most applications end up having to frame their own messages. That's, that's one, one thing that, you know, if, if you think about an application talking to another application, you really don't exchange a stream of bytes. Uh, there are a couple applications that do, but most applications send messages back and forth. Okay. Well, in order to send messages, you have to frame them and, and talk to them up themselves. Now, that's not too bad a problem. I mean, that wasn't uh, the killer. But one of the things that really killed for call control was this absolute, what they call, what, which, what I would call head-of-line blocking. So it's absolute order that you send, send the data in. So let's, um, uh, it's easier to see in a web page example. And uh, yes, SCTP may be, in fact, you can get to SCTP with you know, web over SCTP does work. If you talk, talk to www.sctp.org and you have a browser equipped, <laughs> that, that is, and there's some work going on at University of Delaware to do this. And it's, it's easy to see the, the main problem that the SIGTRAN working group, which is where SCTP is first standardized, saw was you think about a web page, and you go, you know, you think got a web page with five pictures on it, and you, you, you go to the web page and you say, give me picture one, give me picture two, give me picture three, give me picture four, give me picture five. Okay, the application on the other end, the, the Apache server, write busily, you know, gets busy and says, okay, I'll give you all those pictures, and it writes down picture one, and it writes down picture two, and then picture three, and then picture four, and picture five. Now, chances are being probably JPEGs, these things don't all fit in a nice, neat single message. And so it writes probably, I would guess, 4K, 4K byte chunks. That's pretty typical because it's reading from a disk. So, you know, I say they're each 20 megabytes, you know, or even, not even, let's not go 20 megabytes. Let's say, say they're each 10K. Uh, it would read 4K, 4K, and 2K and send, you know, in, in between write 4K, read 4K, write 4K, read 4K, write 2K, read 2K, write 2K. So, and then it'll go, go to the next picture, and the next picture, and the next picture, and they all slowly download. So if you're sitting there watching them download, you see them start to start to draw, and, and the first one would draw, and then the second one would draw, and the third one, and the fourth one, and the fifth one, all in the order in which it was sent. Now, that works really great, except for if you have a loss. So let's say halfway through picture one being gotten to me, you lose a packet. Okay? Um, TCP is going to very nicely retransmit that for you, but the rest of the pictures still come in. They end up in the kernel land, and they slowly build up, held waiting for that piece of picture one that's missing because TCP is not going to deliver anything out of order. Okay. Then finally, you know, usually a second or more later, a retransmission will happen. The data will come through. Then all of a sudden, you'll see a burst on your screen where all of a sudden the rest of picture one, a bunch of picture two, maybe even, maybe even into picture three all draw, and then it goes back to its low, slow drawing. Um, oftentimes, years ago, being on dial-up, you'd get really frustrated. you hit the stop button, you hit the reload button whenever that happened. Okay? What it really 
what that really does is cause a reset to the TCP connection and a new connection to be created and more downloads you know, to restart the whole process. So oftentimes you weren't doing yourself a favor by doing that, but what that is is when you see that occur, is you're seeing head-of-line blocking, and you can definitely <laughs> see it real easily on dial-up and, and even to some extent on some slower web, web links and such. If you talk to a slow server on the Internet or, or your DSL speed is a little slow, sometimes you'll see that occur. That's really unacceptable if you think about, I want to make a phone call, and you want to make a phone call. The calling framework that's you know, running maybe my SIP proxy or something sends a call setup message on my call, and then it sends a call setup message on your call. If mine gets lost, you really don't want to wait for my call to re- my call setup message to be retransmitted before your call goes through. <laughs> and and that was a, probably the main problem that Sigtran had with that TCP. Now there's some other things as well. TCP is inherently singly homed. When I say multi homed or singly homed, I'm talking about how many IP addresses you have and how many interfaces you have. So you have no fault tolerance at all. And, of course, if you're doing anything that involves money, people like to have fault tolerance. And then uh, the other thing that has actually come to, to light recently is well used by certain folks, uh, which I can't talk about, is that TCP's checksum is very weak. Um, and I, I mentioned we have UDP and TCP as a checksum. The reality is about one in every 10 million packets will get through the checksum and say, yep, it's good, nothing wrong with that, and it's actually corrupt. Okay. This has to do with the way that TCP does a, a simple additive sum with, with rollover. And uh, there's uh, Jonathan Stone did some research on this. That's where, where, where I get the one in 10 million. Is Jonathan Stone had some interesting research he did with you know, looking at TCP flows across the Internet and you know, detecting all the, the, the data that went across and seeing whether the data was correct or not. And he averaged out about one in every 10 million packets. The data comes across TCP. TCP says, yep, it's good. And it's not, okay? And if you think about the way a simple additive sum works, the reason that's so is I could, t- I could take a, a, a packet and take a piece in the middle and move it, to the, move it to the back of the packet, and you would never know it because it would still sum up the same. So th- these are probably three of the fundamental problems that, that the SIGTRAN people have. I don't think SIGTRAN has much problem with the checksum. There's others that have, and, and uh, consequently we have a real strong checksum in, in SCTP, which makes it, um, you, you won't have that problem. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And there's some other security issues we touched up as well. So we, we did some things um, to, to, we built into the SCTP startup uh, a four-way handshake, which prevents uh, the sin flooding type attacks. Some of the other re- more recent attacks um, on the TCP, long-lived TCP flows, were also kind of averted by the way we did the uh, something called a, a verification tag is in SCTP that prevent, you, you know, I mean, you basically have to have seen that verification tag. You can't be a lucky guesser and be able to reset a connection, if you will, like you can in TCP. There's some mitigations that have been put into TCP to address this, but still, uh, SCTP's never had that sort of problem. So a little while back when you talked about multi-homing, mm-hmm. let me see if I can get the concept straight. You know, in TCP IP, your endpoints essentially are defined by a socket, which is a port number IP pair. Well, it's refine your concept of how you define a, a TCP connection. A TCP connection is defined by a four-tuple, IP address, port, port, IP address. So my IP address and port on my end, your IP address and port on your end, that defines our connection, okay? In SCTP, we don't, that's not, that's not the only thing we use, okay? We, we have a, what, what we, we term an association, not a connection, because it's a little broader in scope. It's a set of IP addresses on my side and a port, a single port. The port's the same. 
and on your side it's a set of IP addresses and a port. Okay? So once I have this set on each side, you can send from any of your IP addresses towards any of my IP addresses, and vice versa for me as well, and those data packets are still considered part of the association. So what this allows us to do is, I mean, I can have an interface break uh, that is on my machine, and my connection will stay up. Uh, it will use the alternate, alternate IP addresses, and it, everything will hopefully all work. <laughs> there's, there's some things that can happen that can still go wrong, but in theory it increases your redundancy. But both endpoints still have to be a single host? Yes. So you have to be a host and I have to be a host. I mean, you, there is some things that you can do to actually move a host around. I mean, that, that has been proposed and, and talked about. As well as there's um, talk about using it for mobility purposes, but it's still a single host in the end. And some of that, that I guess, redundancy... Uh, how much of that is currently being solved by switches that do trunking or the ability to have failover between routes? Well, there's a couple of couple issues with with routing, and, I, and I, I'm sure many of my colleagues at Cisco would disagree with me. But routing takes time. You have something called routing convergence, and depending on how far you are away from someone, it can take anywhere from a, a minute to ten minutes where your traffic gets black holed, depending on the routing convergence and how you know routing tables and all that kind of wonderful stuff. And no matter what you do on the local end with switching, if I mesh it all into the same switch, okay, I now have a single point of failure. And even on top of that, no matter what I do with switching, I've got a, a interface card on my machine that can fail. Um, and if I have two of them and I use both of the interface cards, then I am less likely to have failures, in, in, at least in theory. I mean, obviously, if the machine goes down, you're, you're, you're dead anyway. But, you know, <laughs> if the machine dies, so does the application. So, if you will, the, the um, failed point is the same. If you have multiple addresses, so for example, if I'm, I'm not here, my previous home, I was actually multi-homed at. I had a provider through um, Bell South, and I had a provider through... Um, Speakeasy, I think, was the name of the other DSL provider. So I had two twin DSLs. And so if, as often happened, one of them died, my connections can stay up out over the other one. With, with, and, in fact, more than just stay up, it doesn't even, uh, you know, the most, most I see is a retransmission time to get the data across. So if I happen to be actively sending data, um, I might see a one-second retransmission occur, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm talking on the other IP address, and the connection stays up. Whereas now if you are on a TCP connection, it doesn't work that way. Uh, usually there's ingress filtering at the ISP providers. It's going to filter out the packets, and uh, so you couldn't just reroute around the problem locally. The only way to get around that is to do something very, in my opinion, very evil, which is to have host routes put into the Internet itself to advertise my my second provider on my first and vice versa. Uh, actually, some of that is going on now and it's causing the routing tables to grow at almost an ex exponential rate. <laughs> and and that is a real problem. That's, it's it's uh, something that can causes longer convergence and causes you know much more problems in as far as how scalable is the internet i mean if you the default free zone gets too many routes are, are we going to be able to keep up that's a question in a lot of people's mind well if everyone was using sctp that wanted to be multi-home they wouldn't have that problem is there a limit to the number of interfaces that can be in an association well there's definitely going to be a physical limit um at some point i mean in fact i was hacking this morning and i just put a a, a limit of 20 ipv6 addresses in 
uh, connection just from the standpoint of um, if I have 20 interface addresses, uh, I start to get my initial packets get to be pretty good size when I, when I set up the association. It, it can be more. I mean, in theory, the maximum you could do is take the largest IP datagram you could put together, which would be 65K, figure out how many IP addresses are listed in that during the setup of the, of the connection, and you know, you, you come up with several thousand anyway. That's really an unmanageable number to work with on, on a host anyway. I mean, most hosts have, have a, have a limp, physical limit to how many slots you can put in your, your chassis. I have been told there are some routers that have thousands and thousands of IP addresses, but uh, for those, uh, they'll have to use a little bit uh, more of a subset of the addresses instead of all uh, 20,000 addresses or, or whatever the machines are equipped with. So if we used to all start implementing SCTP, we all have lots of multi-home machines. Is the Internet going to crumble under heartbeat messages? I don't think so. I mean, the, the heartbeat, in fact, <laughs> one of the proposals that um, was originally with the, with the uh, SCTP was to heartbeat every RTO, which just made me scream. <laughs> um, and actually, it's, it's, it's around every... 35, 40 seconds with a with a jitter. Of, yeah, with a, with a jitter um, for idle destinations where you haven't sent data. So if you presume that you and I are talking, we have you know, two addresses. Uh, you're going to put. I think I figured. I, I, I did this one last week. I was at a, a routing area workshop um, that Cisco hosted, and uh, if I remember right, someone was talking to me about this very subject, and we we he, I discussed with him. Well, you know. He was, he was worried about having 10 addresses and having all these heartbeats. And I figured it out, and it came up to about, I think it was 100 k, k bits of traffic per second. So, you know, you're, we're not talking a huge, huge load of traffic, even if you multiply that by, I think I was figuring 10,000 people all having 10 addresses was like 100 k bits or something. You know, really a minor amount of traffic. So I don't see how the Internet would melt under the, tra- uh, under the traffic pressure, considering how infrequent overall the... Um, uh, heartbeats actually are uh, when you when you scale it up and you think okay uh, you got every around every thirty seconds a heartbeat you've got um, you know ten addresses that's nine uh, you know one of them one of them is actively being used the other nine are not you're going to send nine times nine heartbeats over uh, you know over nine times thirty seconds or two hundred and seventy seconds uh, and somebody else is going to do the same thing it, it averages a really a background noise of traffic. Another feature of SCTP that you talked about was that it was uh, message-oriented as opposed to a, a stream mm-hmm. of bytes. Are the advantages of that only available to applications that are written with SCTP in mind? Take it, you know, if you want to write an application that runs over TCP and, and SCTP, you can write it in such a way that it would take advantage of, of the fact that SCTP is um, message-oriented. If you really want to take full advantage of it, you probably are going to have to take and um, uh, you know, to cut down, because basically a, a, a classic way of framing a message in TCP would be, say, I have a, a, a variable size message somewhere between 100 and 200 bytes that I'm going to write to you, and you're, you're my peer. Okay, well, the first two bytes of that message will have the message linked in it, and then the remainder has the rest of the message that I want to talk to you about. So I'll you know, compose my message with the, you know, in network byte order, the first two bytes has how, how big I'm writing, and then I'll send you that message off with the size. You on the other side are going to read two bytes, look at how big it is, and then you're going to read the rest of the message. And if you get a little more, well, you'll set that in a, a buffer for reassembly, and then you know, start, you know, and hopefully have two more bytes in that reassembly buffer so you know how much more the next message will be. With SCTP, what will happen is if you're specifically written for it, right, I could write the message to you 
not even put the, the two bytes in, but in, in this case, if I want to have a TCP-compatible application, I'd put that two bytes in. You, in theory, could just read, if, if you knew it was somewhere between 100 and 200 bytes, you read into a 200-byte buffer, and you're done with one read. Well, most likely, if you're one of the TCP-compatible, you would read the two bytes. You'd get the first two bytes of the message. Then you'd read the rest of the message, which would all be there for you. So uh, the, the difference would be you'd get, end up with two, two read calls instead of one read call. Um, so you, you end up paying the penalty as if you were running over TCP, even when you're running over SCTP when you don't need to, which, you know, I mean, there, there's some other strategies you can use as well, such as always read a huge amount. Um, you know, if I, if I know my maximum message is going to be 200 bytes, always read a K, and then do reassembly from there. Well, an application that does that wouldn't pay the, would actually get a real nice benefit for SCTP because, Every time it looks, oh look, it's a complete message. How about that? It, you know, and there's there's exactly a complete message. There'd be no reassembly required by the application. So, you know, it really depends on how the application's written. What's the process of bringing a protocol like this to FreeBSD? What's the process? Oh, <laughs> um, well, let's see. We started on it in 2001, and we actually were working with uh, the CAMA project that did IPv6. And we actually were working on the CAMA snapshots and building SCTP. And, it, in fact, this stack has been to many, many of the interops that have went on with SCTP. You know, it's, it's, you, you have to write the code, I guess, is the right <laughs> And it, it's taken us, you know, quite a few years. And then finally the CAMA project ended. And um, I actually contacted uh, George Neil Neville and... Um, Robert Watson and, and started talking with them about maybe we should think about getting SCTP permanently into BSD. And so they said, well, they think that was a great idea. And so they ended up taking me on as a mentoring me and, and uh, giving me a provisional commit bit. So uh, away I went, you know. <laughs> a lot of learning curve. I mean, there's, there's things I had to learn on, on what I had to do and, you know, nice style guidelines, which I, you know, obviously after coding for 25 plus years, you don't always code the way everyone else wants you to code. <laughs> and it's real hard to change when you get old like me. <laughs> so luckily there's you know, tools to help you with that. I think something called Style9 that George sent me. And uh, basically, uh, you know, we, we put the, the base code in, and then uh, over the last uh, probably six months or so uh, with Seven, we've been working on making this, the, this stuff more modular, testing the heck out of it. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that you've got to test. Um, especially with BSD's locking, you know, we, we st when we first put it in, we had some locking issues that we still were, were working on. And right now, the code is really pretty stable. Uh, I mean, uh, more testing the better. And I, and I, we've got some folks up in uh, Canada that are working with MPI, with Message Passing Interface, which is a, a application that does massive data transfers and does it in high volumes. It, they, they've used SCTP for some of their work and have done some testing for us, as well as uh, University of Delaware has a lab that does testing. So we, we've got a few places. In fact, there's a, even at, this code also runs on Macintosh, and there's a, a company someplace on the Internet that actually has a product based on the code. <laughs> so uh, we, get, we, you know, we get bug reports off and on, and we work on it and fix it and submit them as has, has needed. There's also patches um, for 6.0 and 6.1, not 6.2 yet. I, I need to do that. But, so you can actually take a 6.0 or 6.1 machine and, and put the, the same stack on it as well. So is the stack enabled by default? Not that I'm aware of. You have to actually go into the options file and put on S options space SCTP. Uh, and I don't know what the plans are and to whether they make it enabled by default or not. I mean, it's, it's pretty harmless considering that, you know, it's a, you know, you have to open a socket up to even get it used. But uh, I can understand we want to be cautious about uh, 
enabling anything unless the client needs it. And how about the process of bringing a new protocol to the standards track? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's another that, that, That's a long discussion. Um, basically, um, it was a – do you know a gentleman named Marshall Rose? Um, you might have heard him. He's an inventor of Beep and several other things. He wrote an interesting book called uh, the, the Open Book, and I have a copy of that. There's Chapter 16 deals all with standards bodies, and everything he says in there is true. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. If, if, there, if you're an ambitious reader, you might be able to find it. It's out of print, but it's, it's a classic volume on, on how standards bodies work. It was a, a project. We actually had brought this, what became SCTP, into the IETF. Oh, um, at the same time, just coincidentally, that Sigtran was starting up. Is we thought this this was cool. We actually have two layers. There's something called the, our SCTP, or we, we, at that time we called it MDTP, and there was another thing called um, DDP, which now is called ASAP and ENRP, which is something called Archer Pool. Is the working group that actually works on it, uh, which is a session layer fault tolerance layer. And and the, the, what we had is MDTP was the link layer fault tolerance, and DDP, or and now it's called ASAP and ENRP was the session layer fault tolerance. And we brought this first piece of the stack in, and we, at that same moment, we found out that, oh, SigTran's just starting up. We were kind of pointed that way, and we ended up you know, pitching MDTP into that group as a possible candidate to, um, to uh, standardize for their transport protocol because the IETF at that moment just happened to be willing to entertain another transport protocol, which is something that they don't do too often, you might, you might imagine. <laughs> and... Um, so, it, you know, kind of the moon and sun are kind of aligned at just the right moment. We, we got it in there, and our, our proposal was the one that was selected. And then, of course, we had more co-authors were added, and we all kind of refined it. And like anything you put into the IETF, it isn't the same as, you know, what you put in at the beginning doesn't necessarily equate to what comes out at the end. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things that I like about SCTV, um, things that were added in the IETF process, things that we had beforehand. There's some things that uh, I really wish we wouldn't have added, but, you know, uh, you have to compromise. <laughs> so I, I guess that's the, the key word for standards, standards work is compromise. And I know that old protocols never die, and they don't do flag days anymore, but would it be possible to completely rip out TCP and UDP? And uh, I doubt you could replace UDP. There, there are some, there's a partial reliability extension that actually lets you do UDP-like things. The problem that applications that use UDP have is that they usually have their own form of congestion control. Uh, for example, if you're streaming media over the Internet, um, there's something called RTCP, I think is the terminal, RTP and RTCP for taking care of the congestion control. And they work in terms of, you know, how it's not anything like the AMD congestion control that TCP and SCTP consequently use. So those type of applications just are, would not be fit to run over SCTP. I've seen people do it, and it does somewhat work. But in general, it's probably not a desirable thing. TCP, on the other hand, there's about nothing you can't do with TCP that you can't do with SCTP. Um, in fact, if you're application writer out there, uh, it can be very simple for you if you really so desire to be, take the simplest approach. Um, you basically change your socket call from saying socket AFI net comma uh, socket stream comma zero, and you change that in zero to an IP protocol SCTP, and your socket just became an SCTP socket. It works the same. It smells the same. It looks just like TCP in, in many forms. And what you get for that is you get multi-homing. Um, you don't get to use the streams and things. You have to do 
some extended system calls for that or, or add ancillary data. But in general, you know, you can seamlessly move over to um, uh, use SCTP with, with little changes in your application. In fact, there's a gentleman uh, that got his master's at the University of uh, Delaware that had an uh, interesting project, which he, he, cl- he claims he's going to port to 7 for me. Uh, and if he does, we'll see about shepherding into BSD as well, which actually allowed you to actually have a hidden shim layer inside the socket layer. And actually what it would do is you would enable it with syscontrols, and you'd say, okay, I want port 80 turned on. And then any connection into port 80 would also be listing on SCTP as well. Or if you were connecting out on, up from port 80, it would first try SCTP and then fall back to TCP. So it's very kind of a clever little shim, and the application would still be a binary application that ran TCP as far as it knew, but under the covers with just syscontrols, you could make it run both SCTP and TCP or, and prefer SCTP if it was available. <laughs> really kind of a clever, clever uh, uh, idea. And uh, like I said, it, it, someday in the future we'll probably have that available in BSD as well. His work is out there on the Internet, but he, he hasn't ported it to 7. I think he worked in 4.11 at, at the time was where FreeBSD was. So it's, it's a little aged, and it needs some work with locking and some other things. So if he gets it done, that would be great. If, uh, if not, well, it, you know, it's, it's a slow migration. It's, it's new applications that, um, you know, hey, gee, I, I need to use some new features. I want some extended features. I want to be able, be able to have partial ordering or completely unordered data going across the, the net. Well, you know, SCTP is a natural choice for him. Is it possible to bring up interfaces during the middle of an SCTP transmission? Depending on one thing, there is an extension to SCTP called the Add IP or Address Reconfiguration Draft. It's about to become an RFC. I mean, we're there was two drafts that had to go through together. One's called Authentication. The other, uh, the Add IP Draft. The Authentication Draft is about to drop into the RFC editor queue. Right behind that, the Add IP Draft will drop. Um, Add IP basically allows you to do three things. I can at any time say, please add this address to my association. Um, I, I just got this added. Uh, oh, i got to delete this one. It's, it's no longer good. And also, oh, by the way, you know the address you want to send to on, on a regular basis that's what's called the primary address? Basically, when uh, association sets up, each side picks a primary address. So, for example, if I, have, if I offer you A, B, and C as the interfaces to send to, you'll pick one of them A, B, or C randomly. You know, there's no real set method to your madness. You'll grab one, and that's the primary address, and all your data will flow to A, say. Well, I can actually, with this extension, say, Hey, uh, can, you know, uh, can you send to B instead? Uh, please set your primary order to B. Now, it's advisory. You don't have to do it. But, you know, obviously if the machine is going to the trouble to tell you if something's going on, you know, maybe A is about to be deleted or, you know, removed. And actually this extension has been proposed for mobility purposes. And actually in 2002 I was walking around the outside of my yard in Chicago doing just that, watching, you know, having it, you know, roam from one IP address to the other, you know, I have to dig up an address and all of a sudden my connection adds that in and then drop the other one off and it, it does work. Okay, well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk, number 102.